0: The scripture reading for today is taken from the Gospel of Luke and we'll be reading together from Luke chapter 5 verses 29 to 39 specifically focusing on the verses 36 to 39. Luke 5 verses 29 to 39 specifically focusing On verses, pardon me, verses 33 to 39. So Jesus has just been traveling around Galilee. This is still within his Galilean ministry. And he has been teaching, preaching, and healing throughout this time. And the more he does, the more opposition begins to rise up against him. And come to our passage here. Then Levi, who Jesus had just called to a new life, called to follow him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires the new, for, he says, the old is better. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, have you ever worshipped elsewhere? Maybe it was in a URC, United Reformed Church, one of our sister churches. Maybe it was in a sister church that's a Presbyterian church. Maybe it was in one of our Reformed churches in Quebec. Or maybe elsewhere. And while you were there, you experienced a different order of worship. You experienced people... Worshipping in different ways than you yourself were used to. It can seem a little bit strange sometimes when you're found in these situations. It can maybe even seem a little bit uncomfortable because that's not what you're used to. But then as you leave, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? as you leave that particular church. Was the gospel preached? Did they look to Jesus Christ? Was Jesus Christ at the center of what was being proclaimed? When we look to Jesus Christ, then suddenly these changes become more peripheral things, don't they? We are able to celebrate and to worship together with these brothers and sisters that we find all around the country and all around the world because we join together with them in proclaiming Christ. We join together with them in worship. This is something that Jesus is coming to teach His followers. Now, for the context of our passage here, we need to recognize the fact that there is a little bit of a gap that comes between verses 32 and 33. Jesus has come into a new situation here. Here in Luke 5, Luke makes it seem almost like, he makes it seem almost like the Pharisees are the ones who are speaking in response at this very same dinner that Jesus Christ is at, celebrating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, Luke often squeezes the timeline in this way, but he still gives us a bit of a clue that there's a change in setting going on. We know from Mark that this particular event came a good while after the dinner, perhaps even several days after the dinner that Jesus Christ had with these tax collectors and with these sinners And Luke gives us a bit of a clue that there's a shift in perspective happening here when he says, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Those who are asking this question of him don't say we, but they say the Pharisees. Talking about them as the Pharisees shows that it's someone else that's speaking. So what's going on here? Well, this discussion is happening during a season of fasting. What exactly the fast is all about isn't exactly made clear here, but most commentators believe that this is a fast of the Day of Atonement. This was traditionally a day of national fasting. What is clear, however, is that it's the expected thing for him to do. This is the expected thing for disciples as the people of God to be involved with. And this isn't just something that's an outward show. This isn't just something that the Pharisees themselves do to show everybody else how pious they are. This is something that the disciples of John are also involved with. The Pharisees and the disciples of John are fasting. Now the crowds are a little bit confused. Confused. They know that Jesus is religious. They know that he is from God. But his followers, many of them new believers or, or newly returned to God, they don't live in the same way as these really religious other people that they see around them. And this confuses them. Jesus Answers them with a brief answer, describing himself as the bridegroom. There's something special about his presence here on earth, and this gives his people reason to rejoice. This might seem to us a little bit confusing, because Jesus himself has not thrown out the idea of fasting, even among his own disciples, even during this time that they spend on earth. We can see this from passages like Matthew 6, verse 16, where he gives very specific instructions about fasting. So what is Jesus doing at this point in time? Jesus is using this to make a point. And he goes on to expand on that point with a parable. And this brings us to our theme and points. The parable of clothes... And of wineskins. And we'll see, first of all, the reason for the parable, and secondly, the heart of the parable. Now, in this first step of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, he has been going from place to place using the town of Capernaum as his home base and going from place to place throughout Galilee and preaching and teaching. Now, who Jesus came for has just been recently explained. Jesus had just revealed who he as Messiah had come for. And here in Luke chapter 5 we see this unfolding piece by piece. He started out first with reaching out to fishermen who were rough men. But they were men who recognized their sinfulness and their unworthiness before him. They were men who got up and they were willing to leave everything behind in order to follow him. Secondly, he reached out to someone who was ceremonially unclean bringing him back into the fold. This was a leper who had been left on the outskirts of the people of God, and he brought him back into the fold. Third, he followed that by restoring a lame man, not just someone who was physically lame, but somebody who needed the forgiveness of sins. So he didn't just restore him in his physical body, but he restored his relationship with God himself. And then he concludes that with emphasizing his own authority and his own calling over and against the religious leaders and calling somebody who they despised and rejected above everybody else a tax collector. And he called him with the words, follow me. So he's made it crystal clear who he's coming for. And he highlights this. He highlights what goes on after these four beautiful events with the words of our passage here in Luke chapter 5. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners to repentance. Now in talking about the righteous here, he has let it cut in two ways. First of all, he was talking about those who were genuinely righteous before God, who were washed clean by their repentance. They're reaching out to God. They're asking for forgiveness And they're offering sacrifices. God had granted them the opportunity and the way in which to be clean before him. God had given them a way out. God had given them a substitute. They are the 99 sheep who already belong to God and he leaves them where they are and he goes after those sheep that have wandered, those sheep that need his help, those sheep that will hear his voice. But he's also been talking to those who are self-righteous, those who are legalistic and feel that they've done everything that the law demands of them. They are upholding the law to, every, to, to its most extreme points and they have built hedges around it in order to protect the law from being broken. They feel they're doing pretty good. If they can't come to see their need, if they see themselves As righteous, Christ hasn't come to call those who think themselves to be righteous to repentance. That call would simply bounce off of deaf ears. Why should they repent if they feel themselves to be righteous, they think? And so his call reaches out to those who see their need. But Jesus wants to drive this home for those who have come to follow Him, those who have come to hear Him. Jesus wants to drive this home for them. And so He, first of all, not just reveals who He has come for, but He uses this opportunity to reveal who He is. What He has come to do. So this day of fasting comes. This is why Luke, by the way, has tied this to the previous passage. Immediately following it with, then they said to him, because it has been intimately tied to the previous verse there, who Jesus has come for. But this is a new day, a day in which fasting comes. Now, like we saw before, we're not exactly sure which day of fasting it is, but we do know that everybody was involved with this day of fasting. And so we'll take a look at what exactly a day of fasting like this would have Involved, why people would have felt obligated to do this. And so we'll look together at Leviticus 16 for a moment. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, and following. So, in this passage in Leviticus, they have been describing what happens around the Day of Atonement, around this day of national prayer, this day of national fasting, humbling ourselves as a nation or humbling themselves as a nation before God, recognizing their sins. He's laid out all of the steps that the high priest is supposed to do taking blood of the bull, sprinkling it on the mercy seat, killing a goat, which is part of the sin offering, so shall he make atonement because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, it says. And then we come to verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells within you, uh, who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean of all of your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. You shall afflict your souls. Other translations have it as, you shall afflict yourselves. This was something that God had called his people to do. Something that God had called his people every time to remember time and time again. Now, if this is the situation that the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John find themselves in, where the entire nation is afflicting themselves through fasting, the entire nation is afflicting themselves through humbling themselves before God in prayer, you can imagine their confusion. You can imagine the confusion of all of these Jews who are following and listening to Jesus. This is a day of fasting. This is a day of prayer. What's going on here? Why aren't you fasting? The disciples of the Pharisees fast, and they are seen as more righteous. But it's not just even the disciples of the Pharisees who are fasting, it's also the disciples of John who are fasting. What's going on here, Jesus? We know that you are closer to John. Why are you not fasting as well? Well, Jesus has been building up to this. If you look at the miracles, if you look at everything that's been going on before that, he has made a man clean. He has restored him to the people of God. He has forgiven a man's sins, restoring him to a right relationship with God. And now he's revealing one more part of who he is, and of what he's done. He has deliberately chosen not to fast on this day. Why? Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? A little over two years later, or around two years later, Jesus is walking down the road of Emmaus after he's been newly resurrected, and he's walking alongside some men who are sad, who are sorrowful about the fact that the man that they had known, who they had believed to be the Messiah, had been crucified. Well, Jesus takes that time to speak with them. And beginning in Genesis, he lays out who he is, why the Messiah had to come, and what he had to do all throughout the pages of Scripture. Jesus is busy giving them a foretaste of that time when he will explain to them in full why he had to come. Here, when he says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The Day of Atonement was one of a national recognition of their need to humble themselves before God. It was remembering and looking at these goats and this bull that had been sacrificed for them and remembering that they themselves deserve to be on that altar because the wages of sin was death. But Jesus Christ is the one who has come to fulfill all of the law. Jesus Christ is the one who has come so that his people might be washed clean. And so he's looking back at that. He's looking at the purpose of the law. And he says, I am here to fulfill that. I am the bridegroom. Can The friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. He is highlighting his task here on earth. This brings us to our second point, the heart of the parable. Jesus unfolds who He is and what He's done or what He will be doing. And then He goes to show those who are listening to Him that they need to change in order to understand who He is. They need to begin to look at the Scriptures through Him as its lens. Now, it's interesting how Jesus begins this parable. He doesn't begin just with talking about sewing a new piece of cloth on the old. He talks about cutting a new piece of clothing to turn it into a patch for the old. Taking this approach would ruin both the old and the new. The new patch will shrink and it'll tear away from the old, and then both of your pieces of clothing will have a hole. This mix simply doesn't work. The same is true as he brings forward this parable of wine and wineskins, new wine and old wineskins. In the ancient world, you would store wine, just like we do today. But you wouldn't do it in glass bottles. In the ancient world, you would store it in a wineskin. And that way, as the wine ferments, as the wine ages, the gas will stretch out The wineskin. The problem was that you could only use a wineskin once. After the new wineskin had stretched to its limit and sat that way for a few months, you couldn't use it again. It would stay stretched out. If you put new wine into this kind of wineskin, a wineskin that's already stretched out to its limit, there's only one way for it to go. It will burst. Now when Jesus is speaking here about old garments and new patches and old wineskins and new wine, he's giving us a picture here of what the religious life of those like the Pharisees looks like. Their picture of religion didn't have room for what Jesus was bringing to the table it didn't have room for people who weren't neat and tidy like themselves, following everything directly to the letter of the law. If Jesus was the great physician, then Pharisees were the people who would come and say, Boy, you're a mess. Come back when you're looking a little healthier. We can work with you then. No, they were inflexible wineskins. They had come to see the law in one particular way. And if people didn't fit into that mold, then they couldn't accept these people. Well, there were two reasons why Christ took issue with that. First of all, With his coming, as we saw, something special has come into the world. His teaching and his preaching is carrying on what's happened in the Old Testament. But it's showing the world what the Old Testament is all about in a way that's completely different from what those who were followers of the Pharisees had understood before. From those who had followed one interpretation after another. He's slowly showing the people what the Old Testament is truly all about. That it is all about Him. Every page of the Old Testament is pointing to Him. And so His disciples have reason to celebrate. But more than that, His kingdom is different from the one that they want to be introducing the world to. At its basic level, it might look the same. You can see wine and wineskins. You can see the Pharisees and their disciples working with the Old Testament. And you can see Jesus with his disciples working with the New Testament. But it's as different as new wine and old wine. And you'll know that difference as you see what happens when this, these old world forms and structures that have built up run into Jesus Christ. The old structures and the old forms are those that have been brought forward by the Pharisees, and they have no room for flexibility. They have no room for grace. And why didn't they have room for it? Because they were looking at the Scriptures apart from Christ. They didn't see their forms of worship as a means to an end. They saw their forms of worship as an end. And so they had built one hedge after another to protect those forms of worship. They didn't see what they were doing as pointing to something bigger and more important. They saw what they were doing as the most important thing of all. Do we run into this in our own hearts at all? When we forget why we're doing what we're doing. When we get so caught up. In the outward forms when we get so caught up in either remaining one way or in changing when we get so caught up in the forms that the glory of God falls by the wayside we begin to lift up our own standard instead of God's word. When people go beyond this standard, they're too enthusiastic. They're too spiritualistic. They don't know how to balance their lives. And when they fall short of it, well, those ones are just lukewarm. They don't really mean it. They are not really righteous. And so we judge them. But what's the point of what we believe? Is it just to fill out all of the forms of religion? Christ reminds us again of why we do what we do. He reminds us again that the end goal is Him. For those who were so caught up in making the form right, it was more than they could handle. They became wineskins that burst, they came, became clothes that couldn't hold the patch, because what was new here, what Christ was introducing to them, just didn't fit into their framework. It didn't fit into their picture of the world, because their picture of the world did not have Christ. And Jesus ends with a warning here as well. But it's a gentle warning. He has patience with them, and he wants to direct those who are thinking in this way. You see, if you get a taste for this kind of a perspective, it can be very difficult to leave behind. If you get caught up in looking at the forms and caught up making things line up, this can be a difficult mindset to leave behind. From their point of view, it's the best way to do it. For no one, Jesus says, after drinking the old, desires the new. For he says the old is better. The old life, the old ways, the old forms are tasty in their minds. They can be tasty in our minds. It's only natural for people to feel this way, Christ tells us. This is the way that all human nature goes. But Jesus has brought new wine. All of the Scriptures point to Him. And their old understanding of Scripture doesn't have room for that. And so He calls them to move away from that and to look to Him. We are called to look beyond outwardly holding the forms. We are called to look behind the way that we think that things ought to go, however naturally precious they might be to us, and to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We can't mix the two. We can't hold as absolute guides in our lives both the gospel that Jesus offers and our own opinions that go beyond the word of God trying to create a hedge around the word of God. We can't use our own opinions that go beyond the word of God as a measure of someone else's spirituality. We can't just try put a patch on things when deeper change is required. If we try, we'll ruin both the old and the new we need to look to Christ. We understand this when dealing with cloth. We understand this when dealing with wine. Let us be reminded by this to look at this in our walk with Christ as well, fixing our eyes on Him. This is the next step in Christ's revelation of Himself as He is on earth the next step of his revelation of himself in redemptive history. He's given the Pharisees and the disciples of John the opportunity to move away for a moment from this focus on themselves, their traditions, the way that they understand things, and to fix their eyes on him. Not making comparisons, not becoming a patchwork of mismatched patterns and practices, but being made new, transformed in His image, fixing our eyes on Him. With this goal in our minds, we will see ourselves growing in Him. With this goal in our minds, We'll see those around us transforming as they follow in his footsteps as well. We will be able to deal with each other in grace. We'll be able to look at each other when we're falling short, when we see somebody as falling short, somebody who's perhaps young in the faith, somebody who's just a little seedling in the faith. And we be, will be able to walk alongside them, taking them with us as we both strive to direct our hearts to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, it's he who has come with the new. The focus of all of the scriptures from the first, of, first page to its last, Jesus Christ. Amen.